This works a lot better when I turn it on. <clears throat> there is a passage of Scripture that I want us to look at a whole chapter, but we're not going to read the whole chapter. Ezekiel chapter 18. And <clears throat> while you find that, I just want to thank each of you, thank you as a congregation for all of the cards and um, calls and just kindnesses in <clears throat> the very sudden loss of my sister back in Indiana. Um, just an unforeseeable sudden fall and hit on the back of her head and that was it. And she, um, you know, was very, very active uh, runner, uh, nurse, um, critical care and coronary care nurse. And <clears throat> you just can't explain those things. And But God permitted it. I know he knows exactly what he is doing. And so you've been so good to us and just kind to us and supportive and your prayers. I think this is the best congregation that there is. So anyway, thank you for all that you have just helped us with. <clears throat> In... The 18th chapter of Ezekiel, we need a little bit of background for it. Um, there were two captivities that occurred with Jerusalem and Judah. Both of them, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, sent his army against Jerusalem. The first time was under a king named Jehoiakim, and Nebuchadnezzar took him off the throne and uh, set up another king, a brother of his, and took, not a lot, but several thousand captive to Babylon. And this was the first um, captivity. Among this group would have been Daniel, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Ezekiel. Later, after Zedekiah, the king that Nebuchadnezzar put up himself on the throne after he took Jehoiakim away, he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, um, kind of irritated Nebuchadnezzar, and decided that he'd, he was sick of dealing with Jerusalem and their continual uh, rebellion. And so he sent his army a second time. The city was completely leveled. City wall torn down. King's palace, all the great houses, and the temple that had stood since Solomon's day were not only burned but um, disassembled stone upon stone, pried apart, and it was absolutely destroyed. And that captivity was a larger captivity. More people were carried away. Um, but Ezekiel was in the first one. And Ezekiel had been a prophet in 
Jerusalem and Judea. And they listened, they didn't pay attention to him at all. They didn't listen to a word he said, warning them that these very kinds of destruction were coming because they had turned away from God. They didn't listen to him. The captivities came, the destruction of the city came. And now Ezekiel finds himself a part of those carried away. Yet God continued using him as his mouthpiece to the captives in Babylon. And he has a lot of difficult prophecies, hard to swallow. The 18th chapter is among those. And we can't, there's 32 verses in the chapter, don't want to read all of them, and some of them are repetitive. So follow with me while we just read a selection of scriptures that will still give us the picture of his prophecy here in 18. Beginning with verse 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Quote, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Five, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right. He describes all that. We don't need to read that. Go to 10. If, the fa if he, that's the righteous man who does what is right, if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, and who does a number of other sinful things, <clears throat> he shall not live. That is the son. That's down in verse 13. He shall not live. He's done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. 14. This same son, who had a good father, but himself was wicked. Now suppose this man, the one who was wicked, fathers a son, who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees learned from it, and does not do likewise. Now, go to 14. We just read for 15, uh, go to 17. 17. <clears throat> he walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. 19, yet you say, so God gives these illustrations, a righteous father who has a wicked son, who has a righteous son. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. 
The Son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the Father, nor the Father suffer for the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery which, of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit why will you die o house of israel for i have no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the lord god so turn and live there are some bedrock principles here that underlie this chapter and there might be, occasionally there are, those who say, well, the principles that are laid out in this chapter are from the Old Testament. There is fact of the matter, I'm not going to get off into all this in church history, but um, there, there is a particular heresy named after the heretic who taught it that we essentially have that there's really a picture of two gods. That we have, that there's a God of the Old Testament who was severe um, and rather, you know, judging and so forth. And then the Son of God, Christ, in the New Testament is compassionate, loving, merciful, redemptive. Um, that's not true um, by any measure it's not we don't have two gods one of them nice um, and then one of them who is mean nor did the one in the old testament kind of spend his he got he got over his temper tantrum you know and he got nice Somewhere in the 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New, he kind of saw the light. And he straightened up and got real redemptive and loving and picked up little kids and did all this. Um, and somehow, you know, he got into a revival meeting someplace and he really got straightened out. This is the same God. It is exactly the same God. 
who operates, operates by the same eternal bedrock principles. Now the Old Testament, he illustrated the plan of salvation that was to come to fruition in the new. Other than those illustrations that the Old Testament illustrated in physical ways and physical rituals what he intended to fulfill in the new. In the old, a literal lamb or a young bull, whatever, was slaughtered for the sins of the one offering that animal. The blood of that animal was sprinkled upon the confessi, confessor, the one who was repenting, the one who was acknowledging and turning from his sins. In the new, we have John the Baptist saying, with Jesus in sight, look, look at him. He's the Lamb of God. In the Old Testament, the physical lamb pointed towards this eternal lamb, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. The salvation that was always pointed to is now fulfilled. We wonderfully live in the light of the New Testament too. The Old Testament has the New Testament enfolded within it and it bursts into fulfillment and greater light in the new. But the foundational bedrock principles are no different at all. Sin, in the Old Testament, sin will kill you. In the New Testament, sin will kill you. That's a bedrock principle. There are several others that I want us to just look at. In this, which is a, a pretty well-known passage of Scripture, it's kind of a pinnacle an, an, among many, a pinnacle chapter. First of all, what are some of the principles, basic principles that are here and are just as real and operational in the New Testament as they are in the Old? Let me just give you a fast illustration of some of the changes. In the Old Testament, you couldn't eat pig meat. Okay, You couldn't have ham. You couldn't eat bacon with your eggs. Okay? God lifted that in the New Testament. He changed. He didn't change at all. He just used a simple matter of a really then unhealthy meat to illustrate stay away from that which is unclean, not just physically, but spiritually. So he didn't win the truth of the New Testament came 
the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to stay away from that which is spiritually unclean. He no longer needs the illustration of staying away from something materially or physically unclean. When he said in the Old Testament, don't cut yourself and make scars on yourself when you have a loved one die. Don't, if you've ever read, I've never preached on this. Maybe I should. Thou shalt not trim the corners of your beard. Thou shalt not seethe a young goat in the milk of his mother. I've never preached on those. Why? Why don't we need to anymore? Those were just physical object lessons. Don't be like the people around you. Don't be like the nations around you that were idolatrous, superstitious, worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars. Don't be like them because they do those things. Once we get into the New Testament, we lose those illustrations of physical marks on us and so forth. And James just says, what's pure religion? What's God after? To visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction. And what? To not eat bacon. Don't cut the corners of your hair. Don't shave off the corners of your beard. No. He said, keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's the truth. That's the bedrock that was being illustrated here, back here, by don't act like the people that are all around you. But what has changed? Nothing. The bedrock truth is the same. Be a different people. A holy people. He illustrated it back here with an object lesson, physical. Here in the new, it's now recognized as spiritual. So, keep that in mind. It doesn't make any difference if this passage happens to be in the Old Testament. It's still true. What is true? One, the fundamental free moral agency of every human being for their personal relationship with God. Okay? That's a bedrock principle. He said, if your dad, if a man is righteous, loves the Lord, walks with the Lord, and he has a son who is neither and goes the opposite direction, the father will live the son will die. Now, again, even here, is he talking about physical death? Not, not at all. He's talking about spiritual estrangement, severance from God. That's the kind of death we have to avoid. That's the kind of death that results from willful disobedience, rebellion against the word and law of God. He said, the father will live, but his son, who grew up in the same church and grew up in the same family, he'll die because he hasn't walked that way personally. 
but he might have a son, and that son will take a lesson from his father's behavior and say, I'm not going to live like that. I'm going to walk with God like my grandpa did. He then, God said, okay, he'll live. But if he has a son who does evil, he'll die. What is that teaching us? It teaches us that I am personally, individually responsible for where I stand with God. Now, in this case, the Israelites had a notion that it really is not a notion of the Israelites. It's every human being. Every single human being since Adam and Eve in our unredeemed state will, will do anything to shift the blame off of us onto somebody else. And let me just jump ahead for a second into the New Testament. This false belief of what we call, in a sense, generational sin. I was, I, I, I was raised this way, I can't help it. You'd think even one chapter like this, if we really took it to heart, Ezekiel should have buried that notion with this chapter. But we get clear up into John 9. And Jesus and his disciples are walking through a village, and it says they see a blind man, and it says he was blind from birth. What did the disciples, who maybe they never read Ezekiel 18 and should have, what they say? They said, Master, who sinned so that this guy was born blind? His parents or him? This idea didn't die. This notion that somehow it's, it, it, the blame's on somebody else. Jesus said, neither his parents or him. That isn't the way things work. Everyone's personal responsibility is intact, but also things happen to people because of the fall, because we're in a fallen world. Nevertheless, Ezekiel establishes here, God does through Ezekiel, everyone is personally responsible for his own sins. Now, this just comes to my mind. I may have told you this, but I had a friend named Steve, and we, you know, I told my parents, it was in high school, you know, that I was um, going to the library. I'd never seen the inside of the city library in Eugene, Oregon. But all the times I was at the library. And this particular night at the library, uh, there was a lot of drinking going on at the library. And I came home real late. And... <laughs> um, you know, my dad had basically two real simple rules about, well, he had more than that. <clears throat> but it was very simple. <clears throat> I catch you smoking, you'll eat the whole pack. He told me, I'll make you eat the whole pack. So don't do it. Don't let me catch you. I catch you drinking. You know, you're, you, uh, all kinds of horrible things will happen to you. 
So I come in, and in the dark in the living room is my dad sitting there, one or two o'clock in the morning. And he materializes out of nowhere, and, uh, which is a sobering experience. And he got close enough to me, and he said, how come there's alcohol on your breath? You've been drinking? In a stroke of brilliance, I answered, no, but Steve was. <laughs> and then my dad, being a genius, said, then if Steve was drinking, how did it get on your breath? Okay? Now, I had a befuddled mind at that moment. Okay? But that's how stupid we are in our efforts to blame somebody else. That dumb. But we always do it. And it started with Adam. Ma, she's the one that, she ate first and she made me do it. We've never stopped that. There is something today, a lot of people talk about, you know, their, their generational sinning. People in my family did this, so therefore I'm predisposed to do the same thing. I told the first service, uh, and I'll use the same truth here, same illustration. Um, I, had, I had two on my mother's side. I had two saints from all I've ever heard, grandparents. I never knew them. They were dead before. One of them was dead before I was born. The other, when I was maybe six months old, my grandmother passed away. I never knew her. On my dad's side, uh, neither were Christians. And my dad's side, grand, my grandfather, passed away before I was born. So all my life, I only knew one grandparent, my dad's mom. And, you know, I, I don't feel wrong to just lay it out straight. She was absolutely the meanest person alive. Um, she regularly snacked on galvanized nails and drank battery acid. That's what she was like. She was meaner than dirt. And to the eternal thanks to God, before I knew her, we moved from Indiana to Oregon. And we spent the next 20 plus years in the Pacific Northwest. And so I never hardly saw her other than whenever we would go back to Indiana, see my mom's side, other five siblings, all of them on the farm, you know, the perfect Christians, fun to go there. Then, literally, we're heading back to Oregon Wednesday, let's say. We push it off till Tuesday to go see Grandma. And we would go, and we'd, it was just torture, um, hated my mother, did not speak to her for over 30 years, and we would sit in her living room, which was, it, it, it was smaller than the size of my office here, almost knees touching. And she would say to one of my sisters, when another one of my siblings was an infant on my mom's lap, 
ask your mother if the baby needs any milk. And they're that far apart. I mean, she was just, well, uh, I'll use the same term that I used. Nope, you don't think I'm a horrible person. She regularly rode a broom. Worst person you could ever run into. My dad said when he went off to school more than once, but he said specifically, said he'll, it was seared in his mind. He was either a third grader or a fourth grader. And he walked down the sidewalk with his brother in the snow, going to grade school, with seared into his mind. His mother with her teeth gritted, yelling with one of those big old wooden-handled butcher knives right there with my dad's dad. I suppose I don't need to prove how bad she was, but my grandfather, I'm told, had a heart attack. He was a mechanic at the Marion, Indiana Packard Garage. And those days, you have a heart attack, they take you home. His fellow workers put him in a car, brought him to his house, half a mile or whatever, and, you know, took his shoes off and whatever and laid him in bed. He died. And my grandmother was shrieking at him because he got grease on the sheets. Uh, that's, that's what she was like. My dad saw that all his life. God intervened, but nevertheless, there wasn't a kinder, more loving, more deferential, supportive person than my dad in his marriage to my mom. He didn't say, well, I never saw a good marriage. I just saw nothing but fighting and this and that, hatred and screaming, and so I can't help it. No. And even before he got converted, he said, I'm not living like that. Somehow he'd never he'd been never been in church, but he said, I know there's a better way, and I'm not gonna live like that. That's this biblical principle. I don't have to, nor can I use as an excuse the previous generation. I'm a free moral agent. I can choose to walk with God, seek his face, trust in him, hold steady, be obedient. I don't have to go the way that my previous generation went. Can't use that as an excuse. That's a fundamental principle that Ezekiel is not moving away from. That I am personally responsible. Let me remind all of us of this. The most dignifying, honoring, uplifting, ennobling thing that God can do is treat me as a responsible free moral agent and hold me accountable for what I do. That's not, we think, we'll call it love, 
I just love, I love Johnny too much to discipline. I just, I'll bail him out for the fourth time. I just love him. No, you don't. Well, who are you to say that? I'll quote the scripture. Proverbs. He that does not immediately, it says, discipline his son, hates him. I didn't say that. God did. It's a twisted, misdefined love that doesn't hold those in my household and my own feet to the fire. God then treats me as a dignified human made in the image and likeness of God and having a free choice and holding me accountable for it. That is lofty. If you remember this, to not hold truly accountable in a moral sense is something reserved for our pets. I am treated as an animal if I'm not held accountable. And so when we even as we're moving morally in our culture today, we're moving towards putting everybody out, out back on the street, no matter pretty much whatever they have committed, whatever crime they have done. And we, well, they've got mitigating circumstances and they've got all oh, this poor little Johnny and whatever. That is treating me like a pet, not a human. I want you to think about that. That isn't uplifting. That's not kindness. It's damning. It encourages in that lifestyle. God doesn't do that. God says, you do this, you trust me, you'll live. You turn from that and you do that, you'll die. That's pretty black and white. So there are two things here. One, there's... God severs this notion of generational excuse or guilt. There is, and I, I must move on, but there, is, there are some within church, the church world, some um, of these, I don't even know what you call it. I don't think, I don't know how rampant it is, but I had somebody in our previous denomination um, this generational curse business. And this guy discovered with a, he, he was a pastor who was counseling, and he discovered with a woman he was working with, she had some sicknesses and she had some trouble in life, never mind the fact that she lived a stupid, evil life. And really dumb, evil things happened. What a surprise. But he discovered that it was not her choices and her disobedience to God. But he discovered through some kind of a, of course he claimed it was God, and I'm not making any of this up. The reason this happened to her, because they discovered in some session with you know people standing around praying, that she had, or no, she hadn't, but her ancestor, 
great, 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 great. It turns out it was 400 years. 400 years earlier, on a beach in Ireland, at a big bonfire on the beach, her great, 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 whoever had burned some babies. That's why she had toenail fungus today. You understand me? It's utter, pure, concentrated, freeze-dried, stupid, according to this. You sin, you'll die. You walk with me, you'll live. Now, that doesn't mean you'll never have heart attacks. It doesn't mean anything of the, of the natural fall. But spiritually, my walk with God is not conditioned by something generations ago. Now, here's a second really deep basic principle that he shifts to in verse 21. He's talking about fathers, sons, down generations. We stand on our own. But then he gets more detailed. He focuses in, beginning in 21, on the individual person themselves and says, if a man is righteous, but he turns from his righteousness and he commits iniquity, and he walks away, he will die. He'll die. That means that there is there is a forfeitable relationship with God that he is talking about. And God responds. We're always in a responsive relationship with God. He said, you walk with me, we'll be fine. You turn away from that, there's going to be consequences. You'll die. Again, spiritually. He says, starkly, all of your righteousness will not be remembered. But in the sin which you've sinned, you'll die. The soul that sins, it shall die. That's another bedrock principle. Now, we might think that's awful harsh. But there's a good news side to it. He said, if the wicked man turns from his wickedness, all of his wickedness will be forgotten. And in his righteousness, he'll live. Here again, and then God says, don't tell me that I'm not fair. He said, I'm very fair. You live right, walk with me, trust me, obey me. Jesus said, do not call me Lord, Lord and not do what I tell you. He said, if you are a branch in me, but you don't bear any fruit, I'll cut you off and cast you into the fire. The soul that sins shall die. The soul that loves, believes, obeys, walks with God, will live. These are basic and stark bedrock truths. All of God's, these underline, these underlay all dealings 
with God. Now, I don't, I've got to quit. God is not, when I went to seminary, um, we had, usually at lunch, we'd argue about theology. Um, and I don't mean that in a, uh, a bad way, that we were angry and screaming and, you know, poking each other with forks. <clears throat> but, you know, we would debate. And there was an old hymn. Um, and the, I can't remember exactly the title, but the first line, there's a new name written down in glory. And it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. It's about becoming saved. Well, the guys and the Calvinists in our seminary, they would make fun of us and they'd say, well, you guys sing, there's a new name written down in pencil. <laughs> God doesn't mean that. I don't mean that. Ezekiel didn't mean that. There is an impenitence, a persistence, a bullheadedness that's involved when he said, if the righteous turns away from his righteousness. This is not something where God takes up resonance in my heart when I'm born again, but he never unpacks. Everything's still in a Samsonite suitcase and it's by the front door. This is not what we're talking about. But this is God's clear declaration that to turn away and maintain that, to persist in that, to remain impenitent, the strivings of the Holy Spirit. Listen, you stepped, you, you got out of bounds here. Transgression means to go off the road and go through the fence. That's what it means. It's to breach the fence. Well, if you did that, there's nothing to do but get back on the road. Or I can become impenitent in being out in the field. That's what this is describing. Don't do that. These fundamental truths will always, we will always face in dealing with God. He's fair, He's good, He's true, and He always keeps His word. Let's just bow our heads for a moment before we dismiss with prayer. Um, and I just want, I want us this morning to just be quiet for a moment. Let the Holy Spirit, if He's prompted us about anything, if there's somewhere that we know I've, I've been cooling off or I've been dabbling in some sin, I, 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 need to, I need to acknowledge it. I need to knock it off. Um, I cannot go on like this and keep right with God. Anybody want to just slip your hand up? So I will ask this morning and say, you know, I've just got some business I think I need to do with God. Um, there's something He's been talking to me about. And I don't want to be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. 
will you pray for me that God will give me the courage and just the moral will to take care of it. And like Proverbs says, turn my feet under your pathway. Anybody just slip your hand up and say, I, I want you to pray for me. I've just got some things I need to deal with, but God will help me. See those, yes, anyone else. Don't ever be afraid to approach God. He says, come unto me, I will abundantly pardon. Father in heaven, thank you for the truth. Thank you that you are transparent as can be. You're not hard to figure out, Lord. And your words are not too complex for us to understand. We may try to dodge them, but we really can't. Help us, Lord, to tighten up the reins wherever we need to, to turn our feet unto your way, to keep our hearts close to you. Those that requested prayer by just slipping up their hand, and any others that could have or should have, I pray you just speak to us, and Lord, help us remember you have one aim, and that is to help every one of us make it safely to heaven. You're not our enemy. You're not harsh, mean, cruel. You love us. So encourage us to approach your throne with boldness to find grace to help in time of need. We ask it in Christ's name, praying that you would keep us as we go. Amen. You are dismissed.